Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So uh, there's going to be, throughout tonight, I think there's going to be a little bit of, of review. Some things that I've shared before throughout the past few months but, you know, repetition is the mother of learning here. So it's good to hear these things again and again and again and again to let them sink in deeper and deeper. It's why the church does Lent every year, why we do Advent every year, why we do ordinary time every year, so that these mysteries can continually sink in deeper and deeper. So if you're sitting there going, you've said this already. Yeah, I know. Okay. Don't judge me. So we're living through some really, really crazy times right now. Um, I'm going to simplify all of church history into three Segments. So like for the first thousand years of church history, so from 33 AD, the Lord's crucifixion, death and resurrection, all the way up until about the first thousand years, what we were looking at was the church wrestling with issues of Christology, questions about who is Jesus, right? How, how does Jesus have both a divine nature and a human nature? Is this, is this really God in the flesh? So it was Christological issues. And what was coming up in those first thousand years were heresies involving this, this topic of Jesus, right? Christ, Christological heresies. First thousand years. Second thousand years, we could say that the church was marked by ecclesiological issues. Ecclesiology meaning the church. So issues about the nature of the church. It's where you have the schism of the East and the West in the 11th century. It's where you have the, the great schism of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. What you see is a splintering of the body of Christ. So the nature of the church is thrown into question. So that brings us to the third millennium, the, the third thousand years of, of church history. We are only at the beginning of it. What we see here is anthropological heresies, anthropological issues, questions about the very nature of the human person. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Right? This is what we're facing right, na- right now. Great confusion about all of this. So secularism, atheism in the 19th and 20th centuries, it's given birth to this total loss of vision of what it means to be human. We just don't know who we are anymore. We don't know what we are anymore. Right? We just are lost. We are very, very, very lost. We don't know how to be human. So what we're doing is we're trying to reinvent our humanity, or we're even trying to supersede our humanity in transhumanism, right? Trying to go beyond our human limitations, right? This is what we're living through. The uh, Second Vatican Council, Gaudium et Spes, which John Paul II had a great hand in writing and being part of, wrote this. When God is forgotten, the creature becomes unintelligible. I think we've looked at this quote before, but when God is forgotten, the creature becomes unintelligible. Edvard Munch, his famous painting, The Scream, it's just an image of modern man. It's just this deep scream of, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I come from. I don't know what I'm supposed to be. This is modern man. So tonight, friends, tonight is seeking. I'm getting a phone call. There we go. I can't talk, Mom. <laughs> I'm kind of busy. <laughs> Being a priest. All right. Tonight is seeking to understand how we got here. That's what tonight's about. Seeking to understand how we got here. In particular, how we got here in terms of our understanding of the body and sexuality and everything that's involved in what's going on in these very confusing times of ours. That, 
You've heard me say this before, but the battle, again, is it over our souls or over our flesh? Ooh, very good. Yes, is the answer. I'm looking for the flesh, though, right? The battle's over the flesh. It's, ba- it's a battle over the body. It's a battle over the body. What is the meaning of our embodiment? Right? It's, it's over the flesh. What is the meaning of our flesh? Everything hinges on the flesh. Look at this from the Catechism. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. See, I told you. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is the creator of the flesh. We believe in the word made in order to redeem the? We believe in the resurrection of the? The fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the? Very good. So much flesh. It's all about the flesh. It's all about the flesh. When you put it this way, nearly all of the hot-button morality questions and issues that we face in our world today, nearly all of them, they all stem from, by the way, this is, this is Blue's Clues. This is just a screenshot from Blue's Clues. Remember Blue's Clues? Like, here's the mail that never fails. Now it's, we don't know what is a mail, you know, all these things. Yeah. All the issues, the hot button issues that swirl in our culture today, they all flow from this deep misunderstanding of our flesh, our human embodiment, our human embodiment. Chris, when you were walking down, you mentioned Daniel in the lion's den. And I said, I found this painting recently. Check this out. By Britton Riviere. This is what it often feels like as a Catholic to be discussing these issues, to be talking about these issues. But here's my favorite part of this painting. Let's zoom in on this main lion. Look at his eyes. Who's scared of who? The lion's scared of Daniel. Like there's like terror in that big lion's eyes. And I do think it's interesting that the most ferocious ones in this painting are the female lions. I don't know what that means. I'm not suggesting anything, but I do think that's interesting. What we're experiencing today in our world is this, this eclipse of the body, eclipse of, eclipse of the meaning of the human body, the meaning of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and, and derivatively, we're, this eclipse of the meaning of what does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a wife? What does it mean to be married? What does it mean to have a family? What does it mean to be a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister? What, just what does it mean to be human? Like those words I just said, husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, all of those words, first of all, those words imply relationship and they only make sense in reference to our bodies. How do you know which horse is the daddy horse? It's by reference to his body. What does his body do, right? These words are fleshy words. The enemy is after the words, and it's playing itself in our culture. Birth certificates in many states are totally different now. You don't have mother or father. What do you have? Parent and parent. And look at the names of these parents. Frank and Adam. Parents of Sophia. How? I don't know. The enemy is after the words. He is after the words. He's after, right? Because if Jesus is the word, 
the Logos, right? That's what John says at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. All things came to be through the Word. If Jesus is the Word, what does the word Logos mean? It means meaning, rationality, um, understanding, the, 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 the mystery behind all things. If that's who Jesus is, the enemy is the anti-Word, right? If Jesus is the truth, the enemy is the liar, right? He's the one who speaks falsehood. And he can't, he can't create evil. All that he can do is twist the good things that God has made. So he twists these true things so that husband means something different. Family means something different. Marriage means something different. He's going after all of the words. And these words, as we've been talking about all year, especially these words that have reference to our bodies, marriage, sexuality, these are the words that reveal the nature of our faith. These are the words, like, to speak about husband and wife. If you don't know what a husband and wife is, you will never understand when Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, you're the bride. He's trying to maximize confusion by reclaiming and redrafting these words. Here's what we got going on in our world. Look at this. Today, governments, in fact, are now demanding in law that we identify everybody without identifying any body. But when we identify somebody without reference to his or her body, we identify quite literally nobody. <laughs> it's true. Here's the problem. We are not nobodies. We are somebodies. Right? The flesh matters. What's at the root of all this? Where is this coming from? It's not from this party or that party or that think tank or that crazy person in Germany. It's, it's Germany, man. All the evil comes from Germany. Like, it's the portal like hell comes up through Germany. And I'm German. It's, it's all coming from hell. It's from the father of lies. It's from the father of lies. So this is where I want to begin to kind of get into this. And this is where I want to start. As most of you are probably aware, maybe some of us are probably aware, the Blessed Mother began to appear to three shepherd children from Portugal in the early 1900s, beginning on, uh, beginning on May 13th and going through October 13th, 1917. And she delivered throughout the course of these visitations um, three messages to these uh, shepherd children, Francesco, Jacinta, and Lucia uh, dos Santos. There were Francesca and Jacinta. Francesco and Jacinta were, cousin, or were brother and sister, and they were cousins with Lucia. Um, she began to deliver these messages, these, these secrets as they've as they become called, the, the visions of Our Lady of Fatima. The first was a prophecy. Um, no, I'm sorry. The first was a vision of hell. She gave these little kids. I was just saying to Sam, like, these little kids are like five, six, seven years old, this harrowing vision of hell. Seems a little irresponsible, if you ask me. Like, they're pretty young, Mary. Like, they couldn't even see a PG-13 movie. She's like, here's hell. Right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the second thing that she shared was this prophecy about another great war sweeping through the world um, if Russia was not consecrated to her immaculate heart and that Russia would begin to spread her errors throughout the world. And the third was a it was a secret regarding the Holy Father that the Holy Father would have much to suffer and would be killed. So these were the three secrets of Fatima. So regarding that second prophecy about Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, people hear that and they think, oh, she's talking about communism, that like communism is going to spread. It's like, well, yes, but it's deeper than that. 
Karl Marx, right, who maybe you studied in your political philosophy 101 class, if you took anything like that in college, or if you watch the news now, um, <laughs> Karl Marx is all about class struggle, the difference between the, the, the power differentials, right? Um, and he was basing it off of economic uh, power struggle, the haves versus the have-nots. This was the defining factor in history. The fundamental class struggle, however, he said, was not it, it was beyond economics. Both him and, and Friedrich Engels, who were the, the kind of the co-founders, the intellectual minds behind communism and socialism, they said that the fundamental class struggle is not between the haves and the have-nots in terms of economy. The fundamental class struggle was, it was in monogamous marriage. Listen to this. The first division of labor, Marx co-wrote with Engels, is that between man and woman for the propagation of children. Marxist theory demands, demands, the abolition of the monogamous family as the economic unit of society. If you remember, the summer of 2020, Black Lives Matter, BLM, became very big in the news. And you, you were gonna, if you were to visit their website for a few months um, post-George Floyd, you saw in their marching orders, um, we are attempting the abolition of the monogamous family as the social unit of society. That quickly got kind of like sweeped off their website because it's like they kind of showed their cards a little bit too much, but it was right there for months. This is what they, this is what they want. The abolition of monogamy, the abolition of, of, of marriage, getting rid, essentially getting rid of the sex distinction. Because it's the, he, what they saw was the power differential between the as one of them said, the impregnator and the impregnated. There's a power differential there. It's only been in our own day and age now, the world we're living through now, that we have seen this component of Marxist theory come to the fore with gender theory and critical theory, all of this stuff. Like this aspect that was always latent in communist theory, it's now just right there on the surface. It's in the classrooms. It's, on, it's in... Uh, What's the show I just showed you? Blue's Clues, it's Blue's Clues. Sesame Street, all of them. Get rid of the family as the basic unit of society. Replace it with the state, right? Yeah, bureaugamy is what they want. Marriage to the state. So the error that Mary was referring to was the belief that the difference between man and woman, which is an embodied difference, right? That God created, and the family that comes through that embodied difference, that that could be overcome or eliminated or done away with. So the enemy from the beginning has been attacking the sexual difference. He's trying to undermine the sexual difference and to understand why we first have to understand or be reminded of what is the meaning and purpose of the sex distinction, right? We have to go back there. More specifically, what's the, the, the meaning of genital difference? I know, you weren't thinking we were getting there tonight, but we are, okay. <laughs> Just to help you, we got coffee and candy. So. <laughs> so here's the thought experiment I wanna do. I want you to imagine that you're an alien, which is again, also not that hard now when we got things in the news, right? The aliens are everywhere, apparently. Not just on the southern border, here we go, okay. Thought experiment. You're an alien from a genderless planet, 
an alien from a genderless planet. Like your species, the way that you reproduce is you, you're like an amoeba that when it's time to reproduce, there's like this furrow that just like goes down your middle and you're just like and you split into two. Okay, that's your planet. Super weird. It's planet cupcake, okay? So you come to visit Earth because you got an appointment with Joe Rogan. So you're visiting Earth and what, here's what you, you're observing these creatures. And what is it that you likely notice right away about these human beings, this human species, which you probably likely notice right away is that there's men and there's women. There's like two different versions. Like they're both human, but their bodies are different. Their bodies are very similar, but their bodies are different, right? They're both human, but their bodies are different. Then you ask the question, what is this difference for? Like why? Why? Why would you have that? So you investigate these creatures, you study them, and you discover that each member of the species, both the, the, the one with the triangle body, right, and the one with the straight legs, no hands, all of them, you discover that each of them is utterly self-sufficient with respect to nearly every bodily function in every way, right? That the man and the woman can each walk on their own. They have got their own mus skeletal muscular system. They can walk on their own, they can talk on their own, they can eat on their own, they can speak on their own, they digest their own food, they breathe on their own, they think on their own, right? Utterly, utterly self-sufficient in every way except in one respect is what you discover, that the male and the female are radically incomplete with respect to one bodily function that neither of them can do separately. Notice that neatly the cleverly placed Shrubbery. Okay, so raise your hand if you have your own digestive system. Raise your hand if you got your own nervous system. Raise your hand if you, or just, well, just keep your hands up if you've got your own nervous system, you got your own respiratory system. Raise your hand if you got your own uh, lymphatic system, cardiovascular system, reproductive system. Oh, there was something just happened there. Some of you are like, I, I mean, I thought it did. <laughs> now what you have are reproductive organs. To have the reproductive system, you need a member of the opposite sex, right? You need a member of the opposite sex. Reproduction requires the cooperation of the opposite sex. You must have the opposite and complementary genital organs to generate new generations. That's how this works. I know this is not news to any of us tonight, but again, back to basics, right? I've often thought, I've often thought how unfair it is that like the early church martyrs, like the early patristic fathers, they got to think through some of the most incredible things, like how could it be that God's nature dwells in here's in a human body, in human nature? How, how do you have this hypostatic union, God and man, or how do you have the nature of the Trinity, three persons, one God, how do you, so like they got to wrestle with this stuff and like I have to give talks about there's, there's boys and girls, you know, like, and that's what I'll probably be killed for, you know, it's just not fair. All right, like our, my holy card, like my, the martyrdom scene is just gonna, never mind, I'm not gonna go there. All right, the meaning, this is the meaning of gender, ready? Here's the meaning of the word gender. It's the manner in which one generously generates the next generation. 
Gender is determined by how one generously generates the next generation. That's how it works. Versus the, here's the contemporary uh, vision of gender. Who's seen this? The genderbred person. That you have, this is also out of date too. Now we got the gender unicorn because the genderbred person is too androgynous looking. Who knows? You got gender identity, which is like a, a mind thing, which they depict with the brain, which is part of the body, but we won't tell them. A mind thing, then you've got orientation, who you are attracted to, then you've got sex, which is something having to do with your genitals, apparently. It's this total separation between mind and body. Remember when we were talking about Rene Descartes, the Frenchie with the good mustache? And how like what we're living with today came from him saying, I think, therefore I am. Right? He made this split between body and soul. So like his, I think, therefore I am, has turned into, I think, therefore I am, whatever I think I am. That's what we have here. I think that I'm this, despite that my body appears this way. It's awfully confusing. Ay, 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 ay. Again, notice the body has nothing to do with one's sex or identity. A friend of mine who's a pediatric urologist, so he's very deep in this world, uh, he and I were talking about this. And it, it's, it's important to get actually kind of scientific and nuancy on this, that most people, right, most people have either, when I say most, I mean like most, right? Most people have either two X chromosomes, so they are a, what he says, what science says, is a genotypic female, right? Genotypic sex, like what's going on in your chromosomes? Or an XY chromosome, genotypic male, and that typically, genotypic male, genotypic female, is revealed in our phenotypic sex, right? So our secondary sex characteristics. How does that manifest in our bodies, in particular our genitalia? And yeah, and all of that does have an interaction with what's going on in our brain. So there can be androgen deficiencies, there can be androgen receptor issues, there's all sorts of medical things that can go on. But that's what real medicine deals with. This, this is not real medicine. It's just not. It's, it's, it's sad psychologizing of an ideology. So again, the root of the word gender. So this is, it's a Greek root, which means to give birth to, to give life to, right? So we see this root gen in showing up in words like generous or generate or progeny or genesis or genitals. See the root there? It's all of these. Again, gender is determined. One's gender is determined by the manner in which one generates. How many ways are there to generate the next generation? How many ways? One. One way working together. There's, but let's specify, there's a masculine way to generate and a female, feminine way to generate. Right? A man generates the next generation differently than the woman generates the next generation. Right? He gives the seed. She receives the seed and conceives and gestates, right? One's gender is determined by the manner in which one generates the next generation, and that is determined by the genitals that one has. Okay. And what is generated when they do this? It's not a trick question. 
babies, right? <laughs> babies. Very self-sufficient, highly sophisticated, can take care of themselves, no problem, right? I'm a celibate, I don't know. You have to correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> babies, right? No, highly dependent newborns that require very long-term parental investment, right? From both father and mother. I don't have time to go into this tonight, but every sociological marker study, everything that's ever been studied, says that children do best when raised by both their biological mother and father. There's just no exception. There's just no exception. We are not like, like snakes or sharks that like when we, we don't like hatch and we're like, see ya mom, you know, like take off. We're not like amoebas that just divide down the middle. Okay, so this alien concludes that the man and the woman who are engaged in that activity that's generating the next generation, that if that, those two instances of the species, that man, that woman, if they're going to be responsible in what they're doing, then they should have had a prior commitment to each other to raise that child into maturity. Like that right there, this commitment, this prior commitment to child rearing this vow is the root of marriage in every culture. I'm not talking about the sacrament of marriage right now. I'm talking about the reality that every culture that's left us a written record of its existence has channeled the adult sexual relationships of men and women into a stable committed, vowed thing called marriage. And now it might have been one man, many women, polygamy, but there was still a stability, and it was always between a man and a woman. Because, this, this, this is maybe news, only a man and a woman can make a baby. I'm glad you don't look shocked. Okay, good. Like that, again, that's why sexual intercourse has long been called the marital act. It's the kind of thing that married people do. It's the kind of thing that for millennia, married people did because it's a life-giving, it's the only life-giving union. That activity, the marital act, is the only life-giving union. That's it. Here's the facts of life. Let's boil it down. Very small babies exist, fact one. Fact two, there are men and women. <laughs> men and women tend to fall in love. And when in love, they tend to have sex. Why have sex? Because it's the embodied way we give ourselves totally to another. Like, first of all, again, sex is God's idea, right? This is God who is life-giving love. He made sex to be the earthly image of life-giving love, right? He joined the love-making act to the life-giving act. He made these things come together. He could have done it otherwise. He could have had, you know, there's, there's sex, and then there's like this secret handshake that couples learn that, you know, that's how they get pregnant. I don't know. He could have done it. He could have done it. That'd be super weird. <laughs> like, you ready? Okay. Boom! You know? <laughs> Baby! <laughs> All right. Last thing. <laughs> Sex often makes babies. That's a very important point. And finally, babies deserve to be raised by their own mom and dad. The, these, this is the facts of life. This is what everybody used to understand. This is why back in the 
earlier days of, you know, let's just even go back to the 1950s, let's just say, that if a man said to a woman, if a college guy said to a college girl, man, I want to have sex with you, she would think, he wants to marry me. Because only married people have sex. Because men and women tend to fall in love. When in love, they tend to have sex. Sex because it's a bad way we give to each other. Sex often makes babies, and babies need a mom and dad who are committed to each other. Okay, so here's the question. What the heck has changed? Like, how have we, how have we just forgotten all of this? Like, this is just, this is just gone. How has that changed? How did, it, how did we come to forget or dismiss the fact that genitals are meant to generate the next generation? Well, it's because we've been rendering our genitals incapable of generating. And this is not a new thing. There's, there's images in ancient Egypt having to do with the generations of next gener the generating of next generations. There's prescriptions of how they can prevent pregnancy. And I'm not showing them because they're a little too, they're too graphic, but they involve putting crocodile dung in the woman's body in a particular place. And here's the thing, if you die of sepsis, you also tend to not stay pregnant. <laughs> so it's a pretty effective contraceptive. Since the beginning of time, men and women have been trying, attempting to thwart the procreative power of sexuality. It's been there since the beginning, but it really was only in the 18th century when we began to have the ability to create rubber, the vulcanization of rubber in the, 19, in the 1800s, and then later on in the, in the mid-1900s, the 1950s, with the advent of the birth control pill, did we seem to have semi-reliable ways of preventing uh, pregnancy. The birth control pill, thanks to uh, this woman. Anybody know who this is? Margaret Sanger, right? Margaret Sanger. She was a eugenicist. She was a eugenicist. She teamed up with this guy named Gregory Pincus, who was an Australian chemist and biologist who basically did not have a moral compass. And um, yeah, Margaret Sanger has, had a, has a very painful story. Story goes that she watched her own mother die in childbirth, and she says that she looked at her dad and said to him, this was your fault. And she wanted to liberate women from the burdens of motherhood, that they could be just as sexually adventurous as men without any consequences. She also hated the African-American, the black population. Here's a quote from Margaret Sanger. She developed this thing called the Negro Project. We do not want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister, the, the black minister, is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. She teamed up with all of these ministers uh, to get them to sell contraceptives and abortion to their congregations. She's the, she's the founder of Planned Parenthood. I don't know if you know that. She's the founder of Planned Parenthood. The vast majority, and I mean like a statistically significant number in the 80% range of Planned Parenthood clinics are in predominantly African-American uh, neighborhoods. She studied the tactics of, of Hitler and the Third Reich, and she thought that they were onto something with the Jews, but they were going about it in a very inefficient way. It's very inefficient to round people up and load them in rail cars and transport them to death camps and then all the chemicals and you have to kill them and move their bodies and bury their bodies and like, it's just easier if you prevent them from ever being conceived 
or being born. She's been highly successful. Highly successful. At the turn of the 20th century, like contraception in all of its forms, it was not just frowned upon in this country, it was illegal in this country. A set of laws called the Comstock Laws. Uh, Protestant minister, I think his name was Anthony Comstock. I know the last name's right. I can't remember the first name. But um, it related, related to the obscenity laws and, and the distribution of contraceptives, all these things. And up until 1930, every single Christian denomination, every single Christian denomination was unified in its opposition to contraception. Every single Christian church, not just the Catholic church. So what happened in 1930? The Anglican church changed its teaching, saying that in some very rare circumstances, within the context of marriage, a couple could maybe use contraception. And we're talking about the barrier methods at this point, right? Some instances, what was their reasoning? What was their theological reasoning or philosophical reasoning? They didn't have any. There was no philo philosophical or theological reasons behind this. It was simply the fact that people were having big families, and it was hard and exhausting. That was it. It was post-World War I, pre-World War II, Depression era, all these things. It was just hard. What the Anglican Church unwittingly did, and that's giving them some credit, is they cracked the door open. They just opened it ever so slightly, and then shortly thereafter, every single other mainline Protestant denomination fell in line behind the Anglican, saying, we agree with this. This is right. It went from being very rare circumstances to essentially being the norm. Right? This is what happened. So think of like these churches like dominoes falling, da, 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 and they get to the Catholic church. Da, 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 Catholic Church is staying strong on this issue. So fast forward now to 1962. The Second Vatican Council was called. It's the world's greatest and biggest meeting of all time. It's true. This is the biggest meeting in the history of meetings. Meeting bloody meetings. You had every bishop around the world coming for this uh, ecumenical council. It was called by John XXIII to discuss all sorts of different issues, how the church relates to the modern world. I mean, things were changing, man. It was the 1960s, right? Crazy things were happening. I don't remember them. Total transparency. And it's not because, you know, why other people don't remember the 60s. Some of you are like, I got that. That was funny. OK. So this council is called shortly after the advent of the birth control pill which was the birth, it was around the 1950, 1955 mark. It's, it's hard to pinpoint it. Um, again, going back to Margaret Sanger, she teamed up with a chemist named Gregory Pincus to develop this magic pill. Um, they initially tested this drug on men. The men reported they experienced uh, some significant shrinkage in important areas. And all testing on men immediately stopped. And the men said, test it on the girls. It's basically what happened. So they began testing on indigenous folks, people in very poor and rural areas. And many of the women in the initial trials, they just died. They just were just straight up collapsed and died because they didn't have the dosages dialed in. Um, and then they did a lot of other testing in some really, really unethical ways. Um, 
Gregory Pincus at one point said, we need to find a cage of fertile women to test this on. They used the Massachusetts Insane Asylum. Pretty, pretty bad stuff. Anyway, so the birth control pill comes out on the market in the 1950s. Vatican Council is called. There's all sorts of questions. All this pressure is being applied to the church. Will the church finally like, follow suit with all these other churches and like, adopt to this teaching? Right? Pope uh, John XXIII dies. Pope Paul VI becomes the next pope. And he says, we're going to investigate this with a, a special commission. So he gathers about 60 or so individuals who are theologians, doctors, moralists, ethicists, these, these experts in their field to look at this issue, to investigate, Does this, is this pill a different thing than the barrier methods? Is it, is it morally permissible? Can we, can we look, can we do this? So the commission, as it was unfolding, gradually began to say the church should change its teaching. Now, mind you, this commission was just a, a consultative body. They weren't a deliberative body. So they drafted their reports. There was the majority part of the commission. They were pressuring the pope to accept it. They, re, they leaked their report to the press in early May 1967. 1967, the report from the majority commission hits the newspapers, hits world news, that the Catholic Church stop the presses, is going to change its teaching on contraception. Hallelujah, this is a miracle, is what the world is thinking. I can't believe that this is happening, right? This swept through seminaries and episcopacies, bishops, priests, rectors. People thought that the church was finally getting with the times, right? And think about all that's happening right now, 1967, 1968. Like, what's happening in the world? in this era right now? Vietnam. The Vietnam War. What else is happening? Riots. Assassin like, people are, you read, the, you're like, oh, who else got assassinated, right? Like, like JFK, uh, MLK, all the Ks, right? They're all getting assassinated. Hippie culture, Woodstock, right? All, like, throw off all the traditions, all the mores, throw it all, it's all bad. Like, what was it saying? Don't trust anybody over 30, right? That was what's going on, right? So that's, this is all now in the bloodstream. This, this, this report hits that bloodstream, and people are going crazy. So a little over a year later, on July 25th, 1968, Pope Paul VI shocks the world. He shocks the world when he releases this tiny little document. And dang it, I forgot to bring it tonight, because it is tiny. This tiny little document called Humanae Vitae reaffirming the church's traditional teaching that each and every act of intercourse, marital intercourse, needs to both be open to life and unitive, right? Bringing the couple together and open to life. So let me back up on this. Let me say a word about that. That, that, that sexuality, that the sexual act, the marital act, has two ends or two goals. It does two things. First, it, um, well, we'll just... First, it makes babies. <laughs> That's what it does, right? <laughs> and the second thing it does is it bonds the couple together, right? We can put it this way. It's procreative and it's unitive. Procreative and unitive. Or babies and bonding. Procreative and unitive. That God has joined together these two ends, these two goals, within the one act of sexual intercourse. You can think of it like this. That God has joined together the... 
the two ends of eating food, tasting, swallowing, with the act of taking in nutrients, right? So like eating and nutrition all come together, right? These two ends come together in the one act. Babies and bonding, unitive, procreative. He says, each and every act of marital intercourse needs to both be open to life and unitive. So how was Humanae Vitae received? Not well. <laughs> just put it that way. Humanae Vitae was the beginning of what we just still see in the church today. Um, by the way, this is the church you're joining, right? This is the crazy family, right? When you're getting married to someone, you're not marrying just that person. You're marrying their family. And there's usually some nuts in the family, right? Yeah, there's usually crazy, crazy Uncle Bob and then weird Aunt Jenny. You know, like you're, you're marrying, Uncle, well, you're not marrying Uncle Bob and Aunt Jenny, but you know what I'm saying. This is what you're marrying into. Humanae Vitae drops and there becomes this spirit of dissent. Where does it start? It really starts in Washington, D.C. Imagine that. Anyway. So uh, this guy, Father Charles Curran, who is a theologian and professor at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., the day that Humanae Vitae drops, July 25th, he holds a press conference, ego, on the steps of, the, uh, of Catholic U, and he tells the world, he tells the, especially the church in America, Catholics, you do not have to listen to this. This is based on a faulty understanding of human anthropology. This is not true. You don't have to listen to this. Just listen to your conscience. You'll be fine. This is a, this is a bad teaching. Dissent takes over everywhere. It takes over everywhere. It's, it's rampant. It's bishops are in dissent. Priests are in dissent. Pretty much from, from 1968 up, in, up until, honestly, through the 90s, seminarians were taught that don't worry, you don't have to worry about this human Vitae thing, the church is gonna change its teaching back about contraception. Don't, like just, when you talk to couples, just tell them, just think through your conscience, like that you're fine. True, that's truly what happened. That's truly what happened. This remains the most rejected, vilified, ignored teaching of the church. Like, it's not an understatement that like, most Catholics reject Humanae Vitae. Most Catholics who, are, who call, would call themselves good Catholics or Catholics who, I come to Mass, I send my kids to Catholic school, I tithe, I put my envelope in. Most of them, when it comes to this, they're like, no, no, like, don't tell me what to do in my bedroom. Don't tell me what to do with my body. Pope Paul VI, in Humanae Vitae, he he said, he prophesied, essentially, that a world that accepts contraception, these are, I'm just going to read his words. Here's Paul VI, by the way, who's a saint, Pope St. Paul VI. After he issued Humanae Vitae, it, it basically destroyed him. Like, he didn't write another thing. He quickly kind of shriveled and soon died. Like, it was brutal. It was brutal. Pope Paul VI, he said this, let them first consider how easily this course of action, acceptance of contraception, how this course of action could open wide the way for marital infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards. Not much experience is needed to be fully aware of human weaknesses and to understand that human beings, and especially the young, who are so exposed to temptation, 
need incentives to keep the moral law. And it is an evil thing to make it easy for them to break that law. Another effect that gives cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium, reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires, no longer considering her as his partner whom he should surround with care and affection. Finally, careful consideration should be given to the danger of this power passing into the hands of those public authorities who care little for the precepts of the moral law. Who will blame a government which in its attempt to resolve the problems affecting an entire country resorts to the same measures as are regarded as lawful by married people in the solution of a particular family difficulty? Who will prevent public authorities from favoring those contraceptive methods which they consider more effective? Should they regard this as necessary, they may even impose their use on everyone, HHS mandate. It could well happen, therefore, that when people, either individually or in family or social life, experience the inherent difficulties of the divine law and are determined to avoid them, they may give into the hands of public authorities the power to intervene in the most personal and intimate responsibility of husband and wife. Was he right? Like, mic drop, right? He was right. In every, like, like, yeah, in every way he was right. In every way he was right. In every single way he was right. And more right than he could have even imagined. And it wasn't just churchmen. It wasn't just, yeah, it wasn't just people in the church who warned of the ramifications of contraception. Like, Sigmund Freud was against this. <laughs> when Sigmund Freud's against, like, like, huh, right? Gandhi, Gandhi was against this. Gandhi said, the only form of, 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 um, of birth control is self-control. That's a good Gandhi line, right? Roosevelt was against it, for crying out loud. So here's the question. How, how, did, how did these people, these people outside the church, how did they see this? How did they predict this? How did Paul VI predict? How did they understand things that we have forgotten? Like civil law used to understand and defend and protect the fact that it's given in nature that, that, that marriage, sex, and babies belong together and in that order. Right, remember the nursery rhyme you learned? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and the baby carriage. That was good theology that you were learning. That was good anthropology that you were learning, right? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby and the baby carriage, right? This is how we do things, right? Marriage, sex, and babies belong together and in that order that God has united these three realities into this tight knot that reveals who he is and who we are and how we relate. Right? And the thing is, like, contraception not only loosens the bonds between these two, but you insert contraception into that knot, you radically end up redefining all three of those things. Right? In our culture, right, the Supreme Court's ruling of Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, like, marriage isn't really about 
sex anymore. It has nothing to do with sex. It's about personal companionship. Why? Because we've made sex. Sex has nothing to do with babies anymore. Right? So like you untie the knot of marriage, sex, and babies, you redefine all three. Like babies are a clump of cell that can be disposed of if unwanted, or they're a social commodity that you can engineer for yourself if it's so desired. I, I tried to find it. It was it was in my Instagram I was going through the other day. But there was like these these this this homosexual couple who are who are like looking at like all of the options of these embryos that have been created that they're gonna potentially implant in some surrogate. And they're like looking at like, ooh, this one might have green eyes, or this one might have brown eyes, this one's gonna be tall, this one's gonna be like they're going through like they're like picking out handbags. It's either a clump of cells to be disposed of, not a human, or it's like, ooh, I think I'm gonna get like these shoes. We want a baby, right? And what does sex become? Sex becomes mere pleasure exchange, like who, with whoever you want. Mere pleasure exchange, which gender is meaningless, and it's malleable, it's superfluous, it doesn't matter. Marriage becomes a government stamp of approval on whatever form of intimacy you most prize, right? John Corvino, who I forget, I think he writes for The Atlantic, I don't know. But John Corvino, he said that marriage is, it's about your number one person. What? What's so special about the number two, right? Monogamy, right? What, if it's about deep intimacy, deep relationship, if it's about that, why can't I have deep intimacy, deep relationship with three people, with four people? Why can't like a basketball team get married to each other? If it's about deep relationship with each other, like the day that Obergefell versus Hodges was released, polyamorous couples were on the, on the steps of the Supreme Court saying, we have the right to get married. Yeah, why, it, why not? What's magical about the number two? And this is, this is why, and again, if you hear like a harshness of tone in my voice, I, I have no hatred or animus towards anybody who struggles with any of these things, anybody who experiences any of these things. I have nothing but compassion and love. I have friends who experience these realities, and it's, and it's real. Like, it's real. I get it. I get it. What's frustrating is the lack of critical thinking that goes into all of this. Like that we're just being bombarded constantly with propaganda and that we're constantly made to feel that you're a bigot, an unthinking, Bible-thumping bigot if you don't agree with the mainstream progressive agenda. And that's just not true. That's just not true. Like, the embracing of contraception, it has led to the, normaliz it's led to the normalization of homosexual behavior. And, and, and what happened in 2015, this, this the right to so-called gay marriage. Because once you sever pleasure from procreation, why does sexual pleasure need to be an experience limited to the opposite sex? Like, it's, here's the truth. It's, first of all, like, these, these people are not our enemy. These are, this is not the enemy. These are children of God. But like, what these couples do with their bodies it is wholly different than what a heterosexual couple can do with their bodies, right? What a man and a woman can do with their bodies is wholly different, not in degree, but in kind. It's different in kind than what these 
lovely couples can do with their bodies. Like a, a, a homosexual couple, like you can, it's impossible to raise what two men do or two women might do with their genitals to the level of what God invites a man and woman to do with their genitals in marriage, namely generate a new generation. They, they cannot generate a new generation together as a couple. If they want to generate another generation, who do they have to involve? Someone from the opposite sex. And then they get to determine a priori that that child conceived doesn't get to have a relationship with the opposite sex parent. Don't think that's right. It's impossible for their sexual activity to be raised to the level of a procreative type of union. But it is possible for heterosexual couples, men and women, to, to reduce what they do with their genitals in marriage to essentially what homosexual couples do with their genitals in their relationships. Engage in intrinsically sterile sexual activity. Do you, do you see the logic here? Are you seeing it? You with me? Yeah? I know this is a lot coming at you. So when married couples claim a right to sterilize their union through contraception, it's only a matter of time before those who are inclined to inherently sterile sexual unions to claim a right to marriage. You follow that? So when, 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 when married couples claim a right to have inherently sterile unions, contraceptive sex, it's only a matter of time before those who are inclined to inherently sterile sexual activity to claim the right to marriage. Because they see it's equivalent. They're like, it's why Macklemore same, it's why he's saying same love. Because in the mind of the culture, it's the same love. Love is love, it, but it's not. It's not. In a 1984 interview, the few, how are we doing? Can we, should we take like a two minute break, three minute break? All right. All right, let's take a break. <laughs> so, 1984, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, future Pope Benedict XVI, he said this. He predicted that we will atone in our day for the consequences of a sexuality which is no longer linked to procreation. Man, so prophetic. It's crazy. It logically follows from this that every form of genital, genital activity is equivalent, no longer having an objective reason to justify it. Sex seeks what? The subjective reason in the gratification of the desire, in the most satisfying answer to the, to the for the individual. It's whatever I want. Don't tell me what to do with my body. It's whatever I want. He continues, he observed that everyone becomes free to give to his personal libido the content considered suitable for himself. This is what I choose. This is what I desire the most. This is what I like. Hence, it naturally follows that all forms of sexual gratification are transformed into the rights of the individual. Like, welcome to our world. From there, he concluded that people end up demanding the right of escaping from the slavery of nature, demanding the right to be male or female at one's will or pleasure. 
1984, which that by itself is funny and prophetic, right? You know the novel 1984? OK. All right, who can deny that this is the world we live in today, this total eclipse of the body? But you ready for some good news? You want some good news? Do you want some good news? OK, because the plot thickens. So. First, we have to have two popes die, right? So Pope Paul VI dies, 1978. Pope, that was my impression of a pope dying. 1978, Pope Paul VI dies. So all the cardinals come to Rome to elect this guy. His name is Albino Luciani. His name means the white light, pretty cool. He's elected pope to succeed Pope Paul VI. He takes the name Pope John Paul I. And the, and the cardinals are, and the historians are like, ah, excuse us, holy father, no offense. You're just Pope John Paul. You don't have to say the first, because you're the first. He goes, no, no, there will be another. And he was very prophetic, because 33 days later, after he did a Wednesday general audience on faith, one on hope, and one on love, he's like, I'm out of here. And then he dies. <laughs> so, or he, he might have been assassinated. We don't know. So Pope, Paul, Pope John Paul I dies. All the cardinals come back to Rome for the second conclave of 1978. It was like conclaves on conclaves. It was crazy. So that second conclave, 1978, they elect the first non-Italian in over 500 years. This good-looking, handsome Polak, this, this guy, Archbishop Cardinal Karol Wojtyla, he came to the Sea of Peter, and he, <laughs> it's just amazing. Why is this significant? Because in all of the world, if you were looking for the person who was most suited, most equipped to answer the chaos, the sexual confusion, like the person who, who could articulate a response to the insanity, you could not have found a more articulate, brilliant mind than Carol Wojtyla. And the Holy Spirit raises him to the papacy in 1978. He had been working on for decades this manuscript, because in, in, in 1968, in Pope Paul VI's document, Humanae Vitae, he calls for, he says, okay, so I know this is a hard teaching, but to understand this hard teaching, what we need is this, this total vision of man. We need to recover a vision, a full vision of what does it mean to be human. Because apart from that, if you don't understand what a thing is, you can't answer how ought it behave, what's good for it. So John Paul, or Carol Wojtyla sets to work answering the Pope's call to provide this total vision of the human person, human sexuality, love and the divine plan. What does all of it mean? It's this deep philosophical, theological reflection on human love in the story of divine love revealed in the scriptures, all of it. And he brings with him this handwritten manuscript that he began writing on December 8th forget the year, but what's, the, what's December 8th? The Feast of the, the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, right? And the title is Theologia Chala in the Polish, Theology of the Body. Christopher West, who's probably the world's greatest expositor of John Paul II's Theology of the Body, he said this, that this manuscript, the hundreds of pages that followed, held perhaps the most profound and compelling biblical reflection on the meaning of our creation and redemption as male and female ever articulated. The in-depth mystical insights of a modern saint that had the power to change the world if those insights had an opportunity to reach the world, that is. 
boom. He was planning on just releasing this as a book, as Cardinal Wojtyla. And like five people would have read it. <laughs> he becomes Pope. And then for the next five years, every Wednesday, he gets up before the world and proclaims and reads his Theology of the Body bit by bit, part by part. Unbelievable. Theologia Chala had its platform. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. So again, Pope Paul VI, he said, we need to have a new vision of what it means to be human. What it means to be human. The world, thanks to contraception from Margaret Sanger and Gregory Pincus, and also in addition to um, Hugh Hefner, Kinsey, the Playboy Revolution, the Pornography Revolution, the humanity was losing its vision of sexuality. It's like we were viewing sexuality, the marital act, through these like condom colored glasses. Like we just couldn't see it anymore. Like we lost our vision. We couldn't see it. So JP2's teaching, it was an invitation to every human being to come and become one who sees, to see differently. Like remember when we were talking about, when I was talking about the C.S. Lewis distinction between looking at the beam versus looking along the beam, right? Just look at the thing you don't really have a full grasp of it, but when you look along the beam, you see everything beyond it, right? This is, John Paul II was helping the modern world to look along the beam of our humanity. Like, where is it coming from? What does it reveal? What does it signify? He, taught, he sought to reframe the entire question of sexuality, of sexual morality, because up to that point, really, the, the sexual moral questions were really about like, okay, how much can I get away with without crossing the line? Right? It's, it's the question that every, like, every high school classroom I've ever taught in, they're all like, okay, well, Father, like, how, far too, how far is too far? Like, that is such a terrible question, right? Like, how much sin could I get away with before I'm going to hell? You know, like, where am I still, like, in purgatory territory? You know, like... Like, oh, geez. They're, well, one, you do have to give an answer to that question, right? You do have to give an answer. But, like, the better question is, what does love demand of you? Like, how ought you treat this person, right? What does love demand of you? What does it mean to love? Why did God make you male? Why did God make her female, right? Why did God create sex in the first place? What is it for, right? Again, in short, and you've heard me share this, John Paul II's long-studied answer to the question is that God created our sexuality to be revelatory of the triune God. That we are imago dei, image of God, yes, but we are also imago trinitatis, in the image of the Trinity. Right? It's in the moment of communion, when Adam wakes up and sees Eve. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He sees the bride and the two become one flesh in life-giving love. The marriage, sexual complementarity, is the revelation of the Trinity on earth. And, right, earthly Trinity revealing the heavenly Trinity. And it's the revelation of how God wants to relate to us, right? Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. All of these divine mysteries are revealed through our bodies, it's revealed, it's written into our flesh. Here's, again, the thesis statement. We've heard this all year. The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. 
The body has been created, the male body, the female body, they've been created to transfer into the visible realm of creation the mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. Our bodies, it's like we transpose. Like the divine song, the divine love song, is transposed into an earthly key, and it looks like the body. That's what John Paul II is getting at. That God speaks in signs, and the greatest sign that he's speaking is our human embodiment, our human sexuality. I'm trying to skip ahead. I have way too much for you tonight. <laughs> Imagine that. Okay, the, and the enemy did not want this to get out. He did not want this to get out. Like, of course he didn't want this to get out. This is, this is the antidote. This is the medicine. This is the, this is the answer to the chaos and the confusion. He wanted mo more and more people to get more and more confused. So let's fast forward to May 13th, 1981. May 13th, anybody know the significance of May 13th? It's a feast of Our Lady of Fatima. Remember how we started the night talking about Our Lady of Fatima? Right? First secret, vision of hell. Second secret, Russia will spread her heirs. Third secret, hold on to that. John Paul II is riding through St. Peter's Square in the Pope Mobile. Thousands of people in the crowd. Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in the crowd. That day, May 13th, 1981, the Holy Father was planning on announcing the establishment of the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family. That day, he was planning to tell the world, I'm establishing this new pontifical university, has one mission, one job, to promote this vision of theology of the body to the world, to educate, to train, to form people to express this in their own places, in their own languages, in their own ways. It was the apostolic arm of his vision. This is how he was... If, like, if he had the medicine, if T.O.B. is the medicine, this was going to be the syringe to get it into the world. Right? That day, May 13th, 1981, he's about to announce this to the world. Amidst the crowd of thousands of pilgrims is a man who's a communist hired assassin named Ali Atka, professional assassin who had never failed, ever failed in bringing down one of his targets. He was hired that day to take down this pesky Polak pope. From basically point-blank range, Aliaka fires three bullets, three shots into the pope's abdomen. John Paul II goes down. The crowd scatters, screams. There's just blood everywhere. You can search online images. I should have brought, put this in the slideshow. Images of his white cassock just covered in blood. Aka, the gunman, just takes off running. He takes off, but he's apprehended by a nun. <laughs> she tackles him to the ground. She subdues him. This nun's name, Sister Lucia. You can't make this stuff up! Right? Francesco, Jacinta, what was the third girl's name? Lucia. It's not the same Lucia, because that piece should be really old. <laughs> Different Lucia. In St. Peter's Square, if you go to St. Peter's Square today, you can visit and venerate the exact spot on the ground where he was shot. I took this picture in 2018. So the Holy Father, he's rushed to the hospital. 
And the distance between St. Peter's Square and this head hospital in Rome, given the average traffic of the average day, it should have taken about 30 minutes. For whatever reason, the traffic, the lights, it took them eight minutes to get to the hospital. He was flying, right? He was flying. The head trauma surgeon wasn't working that day. He was at home. And he tells the story that while he was at home, he was in the kitchen, and he was overcome with this sense, I have to go to work today. It was his day off. He had worked many days in a row. He was finally off. I have to go to work today. So he puts his coat on, gets in the car, turns the car on, starts driving, radio's on. The Holy Father's been shot. And he's like, oh, I got to go to work today, <laughs> right? <laughs> to the hospital. The Pope, I think he loses something like eight quarts of blood. They're just, just tr pumping blood through this guy. So much blood loss. The bullets missed major arteries and major organs by millimeters, like the tiniest hairline margins he was spared. He's recovering in the hospital. While he's recovering, he, when he finally comes to, um, he asks for the third secret of Fatima to be brought to him, because at this point it had not been revealed. It was sealed in an envelope because it was considered way too intense to be revealed. Like, who wants to know that like the Pope's going to be killed, right? So that was held under wraps. So he goes to get the envelope, he opens it and reads, the Holy Father will have much to suffer and he will die. He will be assassinated. And he's like, like, obviously he's alive. And he goes, one hand fired the bullet, one hand fired the gun, another hand guided the bullet. Another hand guided the bullet. John Paul II, after a while, he goes to visit Aliaka in prison, the guy had one question. How are you still alive? He's like, I've never missed. I've never failed. How are you still alive? John Paul II said, let me tell you about Mary. <laughs> Let's talk about that bullet for a second. So after he recovered, John Paul II takes the bullet, and he wants to honor Our Lady, right, on whose feast day this all happened, and he has the bullet inserted into the crown of Our Lady of Fatima that's in the Vatican. It just so happens that this crown that was made decades before the Holy Father was shot had in the very top of it, can you see here, a hollow space a hollow space that just so happened to perfectly fit the diameter of that bullet. He puts the bullet in the crown. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. Here's John Paul II with Sister Lucia dos Santos, the visionary of Fatima. They both died in the year 2005. Unbelievable. The, uh, the first president of the JP2 Institute in Rome, I think his name is Cardinal Caffara. He was struggling to get this thing off the ground to find the faculty and the people to support him and all that. And he wrote to Sister Lucia asking for um, intercession, support, encouragement. And, and she wrote to him essentially, and I, I paraphrase, that anyone who fights on behalf of marriage and the family is always on the right side. 
Because the final and decisive battle between the enemy and the church will be over the issue of marriage and the family. So don't be surprised if you've experienced opposition. Marriage, sex, and babies belong together and in that order. In that order. Because of this trinity of truths, that it, because it's been revealed by God, it's, been, it's given to us to comprehend who He is, who we are, and the intimacy, the relationship that we're called to, that it is that profoundly deep and beautiful and life-giving. Like, it is that powerful. Like, and the chaos and the confusion in our world that we're experiencing today, it's not going to be fixed by politicians or activists or hashtags or just like blank screens on your Instagram. Like, it's not going to be fixed by any of that. It's going to be healed by the truth. Only what's true can be truly liberating. Only what's true can be truly loving. And as Pope Benedict released, said in his encyclical, um, Caritas and Veritate, truth and charity always have to come together. If we speak the truth without charity, John Paul II said, it's like we're speaking a lie. Because in God, in Jesus, truth and love come together. We have to speak these truths in love. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And we're heading into some very dark days. Like, it's, it's just going to get harder. Like, I shared that one quote about, like, we are not going to experience this progressive ascendancy of the church, this awesome revival where we're, like, taking over everything again. That's not, that's not where we're headed. The body of Christ is going to go the way of the head of Christ, right? Our head apprehended, taken, mocked, spat upon, crucified, died, buried in the ground like a seed. And the body is going to go the same way. The church will, will, the church will be mocked, are we not already mocked, spat upon, derided, it will look like defeat. It's going to get darker. I mean, we were laughing about this, but like, this is not something that's like, oh, out there in California. It's right in our backyard. Like, we just, we just had in Wadsworth a drag queen story hour. It just happened. We have educators attempting to brainwash children into thinking that it's possible that they were born into the wrong body. Right, the gender gingerbread person, genderbred person, or that it's okay for society and children that they begin thinking about sexuality in kindergarten, experimenting, being liberated. What's your orientation? Like we have children being put on puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones as teenagers, and then undergoing life-altering surgeries that mutilate their bodies all before they're legally old enough to buy a beer. Like the same Federal Drug Administration that says that people under 18 should be cautioned about getting tattoos, you know, because they're permanent, recommends double mastectomies for 16-year-old girls, you know, if they feel like they're transgender. What all of this is, what we're experiencing, is a competing religion. This is where I want to land the plane. It's a competing religion. 
it's a competing religion. It's, it's worship. Like, okay, so if it's a competing religion, what's the God? What's the deity? It's, it's this, and I don't mean to be crass, but it's just simply this. It's the worship of the sterile orgasm. That's what it is. It's the culture of death. It's the culture of death. That there's, there's dogma involved. There's doctrine involved. It has its own high priests and prophets. It has its own slogan and scripture. It's got its own sayings. Love is love, right? My body, my choice. All these things. It's a competing religion. It's the religion of the culture of death. It's Satan's kingdom. But here's the thing. We know how the story ends. Cannot be afraid. Our God, who's the Lord and giver of life, he will not let this darkness ultimately succeed, right? Because, because one, he's not nervous right now. He's not up there thinking like, boy, I, whew, what am I going to do? <laughs> like what he's, what he's doing is he's raising up and he's preparing, he's giving heart to martyrs and witnesses. He's preparing a generation of martyrs and witnesses for this new springtime in the church. And the springtime will come through the blood of the martyrs. Things are going to get dark. They're going to get much darker and they're going to get much worse. The chaos and the confusion. I mean, St. Paul, I love this from St. Paul's second letter to Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. But when things are darkest, right, when all hope is gone, you just got to give it three days. Just give it three days. Let's turn our attention in the end here to this queen, the empress of the universe. She's the one who said, in the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. Do you remember from the very beginning of the year, the word triumph, what that means? In St. Paul, when he spoke of the triumph of Christ, that it's this absolute mega parade. In the end, her immaculate heart will be the triumph. Her immaculate heart, which is it's the heart of purity. Like, what did Jesus promise in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Purity of heart. We have to do the hard work of the interior life, the hard work of the spiritual life, letting Jesus in, being confronted with our own struggles, bringing things to the light, letting the light penetrate the darkness of our hearts, confession and prayer, spiritual direction, if that's appropriate, all of these things. Letting the light in. It's the hard work of the heart. But the pure heart get to see God. That's what I want.